The views you are about to hear are the personal views of Kira Lawrence and her guests. They are not necessarily views that are shared by the organisations to which Kira is associated. You're listening to Kira's Pink Sparkle Pod. Kira's Pink Sparkle Pod. So, hi everybody. Welcome to the next episode of Kira's Pink Sparkle Pod. And tonight I'm really delighted to welcome the Daily Telegraph music critic, Neil McCormick. So, welcome, Neil, to Kira's Pink Sparkle Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Kira. So, first of all, um, I would like to know. Now, I've never heard of a job called a music critic before. So please, could you tell me what you do, what a music critic is, and tell me all about your amazing career? (laughs) Well, that's a lot. Um, A music critic or a music journalist, I I write about music, uh, popular music, as opposed to classical music, really, because that's my area of expertise. Uh, my job involves reviewing records, you know, listening to albums and, and, and saying what I think about them, going to gigs, saying what I think, uh, just reporting on on music and uh, interviewing people, which is, you know, probably the most fun part of it, uh, uh, writing, writing those interviews and just generally covering music as as a as a newsy uh item of interest to people who are who are interested in it you know it was a sort of an accidental career it wasn't one that i planned for myself but that's often the way with life i i always liked writing uh and i always thought i'd be a writer of some kind and i i pretty much always loved music but then it sort of took over my life and um I I made music, I played in bands, and I also started working in magazines. And I had a twin career until uh, one of the careers fizzled out, (laughs) which was playing music. And that left me with the other career, which was writing about music. Great. So you're a real music lover and you do that for a career. That's that's amazing because when I looked you up, I was like, oh, I've never heard of a music critic before. What do they do? I'm going to ask. So that's really interesting. Um, and obviously it's very different to my career. So that's really cool. Okay. Um, brilliant. Thank you for that. That's really interesting. Um, so I guess what I'd like to do is then ask you, obviously, we have one amazing thing in common, uh, which is you two. Obviously, we have to mention them, obviously. Um, So could you tell me about your connection to you two? And then I will tell you about mine. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. well, I do know what yours is. (laughs) Um, And I suppose you know what mine is. So... You two are to blame for a lot of this. Okay. <laughs> um, I went to school with the members of you two at Mount Temple in Dublin. Okay. And I was in a class with um, your cousin, <laughs> David Evans. Dave, the Edge. It yeah. took me a long time to call him the Edge. He was Dave for me for about 20 years after he turned into the Edge. But oh. I asked him one time, did he mind me calling him Dave? And he said... 
Well, pretty much everyone calls me the edge now, except my parents and passport officials. And yes. so he became the edge. Uh, we were in class together. Uh, and then Adam Clayton joined the class. Larry Mullen, who, who wasn't junior then, but became junior, was in the class below me in this school. And Bono was in the class above me. Um, but he was such a figure around the school that pretty much everybody knew him. And because we were both interested in in music and art and philosophy and everything else, we we became friends and chatted. And and he got got held back because he actually failed his his Irish exam. And in Ireland, that meant you couldn't progress to university. I think he was quite happy about that. Yeah. Because he came back then and 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 he was in the same class as me and Edge and another classmate, which was Alison uh, Stewart, oh, his wife. So all gathered there. And I saw um, U2's very, very first performance ever anywhere, which was on um, some tables in the Mount Temple Gymnasium in uh, the winter of 1976, I think. Wow. And it was a talent show um, and we had got together. I had written a play actually, which okay. was about the teachers and we were gonna put that on and various people were gonna be involved in this. But before us, on came this band. I knew the band existed because my brother Ivan, is my younger brother, had been rehearsing with them initially. Okay. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, he played the guitar, but he he found he was a bit younger than everybody else, and he found himself surplus to requirements. Anyway, the big day came. It was a big school gymnasium, just like any school gymnasium you'd know, and there were a bunch of tables taped together to make a stage, and a drum kit set up and some amplifiers, and uh, on came a band who called themselves Feedback. Yeah. But it was the exact same four individuals that we we still know as you two who who still together after all these years. Um, Paul Hewson, he hadn't quite become Bono yet. David Evans, he hadn't definitely hadn't become the Edge yet. Uh, Adam, who definitely was already a rock star, <laughs> and uh, and Larry, who was uh, you know probably the the most handsome boy in school, and the girls already all yeah. all adored him. And they came on and they played. Um, Peter Frampton's Show Me The Way. Okay. Now, you know, it was a different time, a different, we didn't have the modern communication that we have now. Plus, yeah. it was Ireland was quite a backwards, you know, quite a backwater country. Not a lot of bands came to play there. There was a lot of music. It was mostly folk music. Uh, the, the radio station was really kind of primitive and backward and you heard a lot of music, you know, we were into music, but I, I had l actually never in my life seen a live electric rock band before. And so I just remember that moment mm. when the drums started up and the bass and edge hit a guitar chord. And it was a D chord, as it turns out, not one of the great guitar chords, but it went <laughs> and it was like an electric lightning bolt it just floored me it yeah. was so uh, thrilling and they they played and i was so enraptured and overwhelmed by this and especially as they played show me the way bono was playing an acoustic guitar 
he sort of stopped playing and he grabbed the microphone stand. He had his Cuban heel boots on. He was stamping on the stage. <laughs> and he grabbed the microphone stand up like Rod Stewart and <laughs> holding it back and singing, I want you, show me way. And it would just was amazing. Yeah. And it was amazing to us. Now, I, I look back and I go, there's a bunch of schoolboys playing their first concert yeah. in a school. It must have been pretty rubbish. You know, if I saw it now, I'd be going, oh, well done, children. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Maybe maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I would be going, well, that's uh, those are future stadium rockers. I w but I was utterly um, transfixed and it was a life-changing moment for me. Mm. There was a lot of things I wanted to do in my life. Uh, I wanted to write. I wanted to act. I used to think I'd be an actor. And I was involved in all these kind of things. And I just saw that and I thought, whoa, that, that's what I want to do. I yeah. want to make, make a, you know, I want to be a rock star. Because it just seemed to have everything. And uh, and so it did kind of warp and change my life. I've said that, that to Bono. Uh, over the, yeah, you know, you know that gig changed my life, and he said, "Well, you know, fair enough, it changed my life too." Uh, the only difference is it sort of changed his life for the better. Yeah. It just sent me careening off down this this other path. Yeah, because they were feedback. Then they yeah. were the, I think, the hype. Yeah. Then either the Virgin proves then you two, I think. No, 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 no. They were feedback, and uh, and then they were the hype. It, it, your other cousin, Dick yeah, Evans, was yeah. also in the in the height. That was the only extra thing. There was five of them, uh -huh. um, and then uh, the hype used to be the name of David Bowie's band. Whatever, for some reason, um, it was decided they should change their name. And and Steve Avril, who was a an ex schoolmate from from Mount Temple, who who'd gone on to have a band called the Radiators from Space. And that went on to become a great graphic artist and did most of the early U2 artwork and is okay. still involved today. He um, suggested U2. I remember at the time, um, uh, Paul Bono asking me to design a poster for them because I was okay. uh, into art. And I just thought, I, mean, <laughs> I thought the name U2 was so terrible. I really liked the hype. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. I, I think the poster I came up with, which was never used, was a picture of a U2 submarine with an X through it. <laughs> <laughs> Just terrible. Um, uh, and, and, and the Virgin Prunes were their friends. Okay. Uh, that was Gavin and Googie. Yeah. And they were pretty wild people. You know, so, you know Bono was always a very interesting guy and he had very interesting friends. If you think about a bunch of schoolboys in Dublin, in Ireland in the 70s, yeah. you know, Gavin would come to our school discos and stuff and he'd walk in with like stacked heels and a silver jacket on and his head pompaded hair pompaded up he really looked like something from outer nice. space and um and as you two they developed very quickly really and as they became better they decided as the hype they would turn into this band this you two and, and they did that in a a church hall in hoth yeah um uh, and I was there that 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 night also. And what happened was the Virgin Prunes played their very first gig that night. Yeah. And the Virgin Prunes on that night was Gavin and Googie, wow. Larry and uh, Adam as their backing band. Okay. They were the support band. Then the hype came on with Dick. 
and they played all the uh, cover versions of songs that they used to play at that time, which was things like Suffragette City by David Bowie, Here Comes the Night by Van Morrison, um, uh, 2468 Motorway by Tom Robinson. They played those kind of things. And then, <clears throat> then they went off. Okay. And that was their farewell gig as the hype. And then they came back on without Dick, just the four of them. Okay. And they played the first U2 set of all originals. Yeah. And, you know, some of those songs did survive all the way to Boy. Many, many were were lost uh, to history. Okay. The, their main big set ending song that time was called Street Missions. Okay. And uh, uh, and the chorus was, it was a street mission. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, the idea is that they were on a street mission. You know, the mission was the religious part of it. The street was taking it to the street. And so it was um, it was setting out, you know, yeah. an indication of, of, of where they might go. And there was a song called The Fool. Uh, there was a character called The Fool that Bono often sang about. Uh, there was a song called School Days because we were all still kids. School Days spelled D-A-Z-E. And uh, we were still, uh, you know, Wow. He was singing about classroom rooms, morning eyeballs, and whatnot. But it was it was a very exciting time. They yeah. they very 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 quickly became the hottest band in Dublin and the hottest band in Ireland. And it was yeah. amazing to witness that because you know I was at pretty much all of those gigs, yeah. and I they they sort of for me it's like they're seeing the Beatles in the cavern. You know they were they were my Beatles. We we had a band, my brother and myself. Um, uh, and we used to sometimes play supports with them, and and so uh, there was a lot of interaction, a lot of friendship, and and uh, and support, and it was really amazing to see them take yeah. off like that. And did you write one of the U two books as well? Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I wrote um I wrote a book of my own, uh, which was originally called I Was Bono's Doppelganger. Okay. Uh, it's a memoir about growing up or about having a career in the shadow of somebody who's become more famous. Quite a, okay. a common thing, really, you know, but it's it's common that we know people who have who succeed in areas that we haven't succeeded in. And, and we have to deal with those emotions that that kicks up. But it's not common that they succeed to that degree. Yeah. <laughs> and they, yeah. you know, you two for me just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. while my band was struggling. And, you know, we'd be playing Wembley Coach and Horses and they'd be playing Wembley Stadium. And it was <laughs> a big difference. Know, yeah. Getting harder to, to deal with uh, being in the shadow of that. So it was partly about that emotion. And it was also about my journey to becoming a writer. And um, Bono liked that book so much that, um, it later became known as Killing Bono. That was the title that yeah. he gave me for it. Yes. It, it was a, it, more about, it was the idea of slaying dragons, you okay. know, that, 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 that um, and he just said, you know, Killing Bono, that's a good title. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people would buy that t-shirt. Um, and he was right, but I, I was quite uncomfortable with that title. But eventually um, in America, when it was published in America, they didn't like the word doppelganger. Okay. It was too complicated. And so, they went with Killing Bono. So um, when my book came out, 
that you two were already working on their autobiography and it wasn't going very well. And he just asked me if I would take over. And um, and so I was the ghostwriter, as we call it, for U2 by U2, which was a real privilege, which yeah. meant I just, um, you know, talked to all of them at great length, um, about 100 hours of conversations Brilliant. and, uh, you know, transcribed all that material and cut the quotes up and put it and shaped it into the book that we know as U2 by you yes. two. So it is by you two. It was sort of orchestrated by me. Brilliant. I have a signed copy at home, so I love it. So I do have a copy at home. <laughs> Not signed by me, though. No, <laughs> did all I will work. meet you one day again. I will get you to sign it along with the others. Um, so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. So, like, do you think there should be more people with a learning disability scene in all areas of the media? Like, what's your view? Like, do you think there's enough in the people with a learning disability in the music world? Do you think there's enough people with a learning disability in the media? Do you think there are enough journalists with a learning disability in the media? Like, what's your personal opinion? I, I probably not, is the, the probably not enough, um, is the answer. Uh, I think that you know visibility of disability has really improved I'd say in the last few years especially certainly when we were growing up it was not visible and you really unless you knew someone with a, a disability whether it was a learning disability or a physical disability or any kind unless you knew someone it wasn't part of your your life and I do think it has improved massively the representation so now you watch you know, people on, on on comedy shows who are disabled. On, on you also have um, disabled people playing themselves or or actors. You know, as opposed to an actor playing uh, at a disabled. I think that kind of representation really has improved, and I do think it has led to a much greater understanding and uh, uh, an empathy than than would have been the case i mean i can't say back in the 70s when we were kids you know there were yeah. bad ways of talking about people with disabilities it was not sympathetically treated and as a subject of jokes it would not be sympathetically treated so it's definitely improved for the better yeah. uh, i you know what you're doing is um you know outstanding Thank because you, you are a figure in the media and you are a figure in your your charity you know actively involved in these things and able to speak from the point of view of uh someone with a uh, learning disability i think that it, within the working side of the media the difficulty with that is that you you could probably have someone like you writing about and, and commenting on you know learning disability but that that's quite a specialist area the media itself is a very cut and thrust area. And, uh, you know, newspaper media mediums are full of, you know, university educated graduates. Yeah. Uh, cleverness, you know, cutting edge, fighting cleverness is something you get <laughs> across. You feel like you're constantly surrounded by people who are, you know, uh, verbally audacious and, and that you have to keep up with. Yeah. You know, the thing is, I, I actually, have what they call a learning difficulty which yeah. is a completely yeah. different thing you know i yeah. um 
Uh, I, not that I knew about it <laughs> when I was growing up, but, um, but because of consciousness of these things like dyslexia and autism that we're much more conscious of now, yeah. um, and there's much more information and much less stigma. Yeah. And I think there's much less stigma to disability and to mental health issues than yeah. there used to be. I, I uh, came to realize that I have ADHD. Okay. Um, and that's, it, it's just rife in my family. And, uh, you know, it was very clear and not surprising to anybody, but it it didn't hold me back in yeah. in the media world because I'd say the creative world is full of people. <laughs> with those type of uh, difficulties in a way it just forces you to have a, a more creative approach to to life in some ways and um and and it might even be an advantage <laughs> so it's a it's a long and roundabout answer so the answer is i do think that things are improving there's always room for improvement uh, but I'd say that the representation of disability in general, in society, is incredibly better than yeah. it used to be. And I'm sure it's because of the advocacy of people like you yeah. and MenCap and disabled people in general saying we have a right to be seen and to be heard. And, and I think we are seeing and hearing now. Yeah. Now, I saw on your Instagram and on Twitter that you were out in America with Adele recently. Tell me about that. So I went to Las Vegas to um, review the Adele launch because, you know, that's my job. That's the job of a music critic. Yeah. It is a great um, uh, privilege, you know, to get the ringside seat at all of these kind of events. I see, you know... I probably see a hundred gigs in the course of the year and I'm not paying for any of them. So, you know, wow. <laughs> uh, I can't even think when, when I, when I got to, uh, uh, it was a couple of funny things just coming into uh, customs in America. First of all, Stormzy was in the passport queue ahead of me. <laughs> That's very surreal. And he's so, he's like six foot six, yeah. you know, start towering up. And he's so famous in the UK anyway, yeah. towering over all these people. To be that famous and to be so visible was quite an odd thing. I felt like shouting, Big Michael! across. The, <laughs> I, I didn't think that would go down well in a passport queue. But I got to the um, immigration and, um, they, you know, they took my passport and they said, you know, how much cash do you have with you? Which was one of the questions you asked. Yeah. And I said, $200. Obviously, this is not because we use credit cards now, but this is not a lot of cash to be traveling to America with, especially in Las Vegas, a city that yeah. just absorbs all cash. Yeah. And so um, he went, what, do you spend all your money on an Adele ticket? <laughs> because <laughs> those tickets, I mean, I, we're going for like thousands of yeah. thousands of dollars. People were paying an absurd amount to see them. Um, the show was amazing. I think that she's an amazing character. She's yeah. a great singer. She's a great songwriter. She's a a performer who puts herself into the song. You know, you really, yeah. you really feel what she's she's doing. And she, she having cancelled that gig earlier, is yeah. all kinds of 
pretend reasons. The real reason was that she was deeply unhappy with the way it was going, clearly, which was going to be this kind of U2 type of production. Uh, you, you know, everybody wants to do a U2 type of production now. They were going to have a swimming pool and she was going to be walking through air and all this. Instead, she was on stage singing her songs. It was really good visuals, but yeah. it was about singing in the band and it was a fantastic show. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there is rumors that you two are going to be doing a, a Las Vegas show. Um, we don't know. Uh, they, <laughs> they, 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 there's talk of them doing Acting Baby or something there. I the know nothing. <laughs> the problem is that I have to say, I think Las Vegas is the most horrible place on earth outside of a war zone. Yeah. For me, it's just the soul-sucking zombie city where you see humankind at its absolute worst. Okay. Just a voracious consumer gamble, sex, glamour, yeah. throw your money in the slot. And okay. I, you know, I don't know if that's a great environment for you to, yeah. but you know. Uh, when I heard, I did hear that online on social media and I was like, mm, I'm not sure that's true. I don't know, because I have to be really careful because obviously a lot of fans know who I am. And obviously I, I'm friendly with a few of them in the UK and kind of like whenever they hear anything, I'm their first pot of call <laughs> and they're like, Kira, do you know anything? I'm like, no, I get told nothing. And actually, YouTube management, they know what a big mouth I am. They <laughs> tell me nothing. They literally, I find out now when everybody else does because they, I do think they trust me. You have to be careful yeah. uh, because people are voracious for information. Yeah. Uh, and um, people think that, you know, obviously, yeah. they ask me the same things. Do, you know, are you two working on a new album and are you two doing this and you yeah. two doing that? Sometimes I know and sometimes I don't know, yeah. but I, I always try and take a little, a little step back. Yeah. I mean, I could call them and ask them that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be, I'd literally be calling out going, I read this today. Uh, I used to do that, but then I think you got fed up of me doing that, so I don't do yes. anymore. But <laughs> you don't want to abuse your privilege. Yeah. Your exactly. seat at the table. Yeah, the UT management kind of team, they all know me. They've known me for a very long time and they know what I'm like and they know me. And they're all kind of like, Kira, know your place. You know where you are in the UT family tree. And I'm like, yes, I know. <laughs> they often remind me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. I saw one of them in London the other week when we were at the Pladium. And I hadn't seen all of them for ages, obviously, because of COVID. And so I was like, oh, hello, hello. And it was like a big UT like, staff reunion there. It was really nice to see everybody. It um, was a lovely. I mean, it yeah. is that for me as well. And, yeah. uh, um, you know, for people I've known all my life, yeah. I've known their, I've known, you know, wives and, uh, you know, yeah. uh, children, and yeah. uh, and then many of people who went to school with us or who were around that that group of of yeah. friends either work within the U two yeah. or have some connection to it, and so um, yeah. It, it always feels like a reunion uh, to me, it's true. Yeah, because um, that night I was a bit cheeky and I was like, even though I'm not here in 
my YouTube official kind of family hat, I can now go and ask people about doing my podcast. I think I'm allowed to do that. So I was literally like going around all the desks going, do you fancy doing my podcast? Like, <laughs> is it okay? And it was really nice, actually. Um, you, of course, I, said yes. So I'm very thankful. Um, uh, Bob I, of course, said yes. And Bob Geldof, of course, said no, because yeah. that's Bob's way, you yeah. know. <laughs> he, I, I don't you can't push him into doing anything he doesn't no, want to do he I don't know whether he was just trying to fold me off or whether it was just like a polite no but he was like um I don't do podcasts I was like okay bye then <laughs> no, well he doesn't he doesn't do things I mean I think it's, Bob Geldof's an amazing person and it's it is amazing to me that I I, I know him because obviously the Boomtown Rats were hugely important to all of us growing up yeah. in in Ireland they they kind of paved the way uh they were the first punk group to come out of Ireland and and not just and they were the first Irish group to have a number one record yeah. in the UK and so we watched them and we were really impressed by them but they were very approachable and and they were they would dish out advice and and uh and be gracious towards us and then later now as a as I've had a later career as a, a, a journalist. I've got to know Bob because I've interviewed him. And then um, and then he he, he calls me up uh, occasionally and uh, to discuss something or other. But, you okay. you know, basically he gets on the phone and abuses you for 15 minutes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> tells you off for everything you've, you've done wrong. <laughs> swears. I mean, nobody swears more than more than Bob Geldof. Yeah. And then eventually gets around yeah. to, to to talking about whatever he wants to talk about. But he's a person um, like Bono who has has changed the world for yeah. the better. And yeah. and I think it's something that the people who are critical of people like Bono and and yeah. Bob, they're yeah. for some reason they're critical of that kind of advocacy. They th- you know like like they're just doing it to showboat or to bring attention to themselves. What they're doing yeah. is using. Uh, the, the currency of fame to try and make the world a better place for others, and when and oh, you know they're hardworking people, uh, Bono and, yeah. and Geldof, and yeah. um, and that what they've achieved is is I find incredibly moving because because there are you know probably millions of people alive today because of what they did. Yeah, you know, not that's not a small thing. No, it's a huge thing. I know exactly and you know I think that's where my charity kind of love has rubbed off now because um, in my own time I've also supported one I've done some campaigning with one in my own time and I've just seen what Bono's done and I wish everybody could see what he does and not everybody does and I really wish they would because they would understand actually he's used his name for good he's used his name to make a world change and you know I hear all these stories from him about people who he's met and offices he's been to and I'm like I'm just little me like working at my own charity trying to raise the name and using my name for good I kind of think his influence has rubbed off on me a little bit um so I call myself the female version of Bono (laughs) okay (laughs) well yeah he's 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 been a good influence as as it turns out I think his book will make a difference I, I hope it is making a difference because it's very clear in that book how driven he is how uh, un, you know, a lot of things that people don't see from the surface, because the surface is a projection, a rock star projection, yeah. a presentation 
of self, which is what, you know, his role is. But his private self is always very generous yeah. with his time, caring about people. He's so, you know, you, you meet him and he gives you his attention and he asks about the kids and he he's much better at remembering everybody's names and 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 uh, and yeah. knowing where they're at he's always happy to see your children your wife yeah he is a much more down to earth person than people I've seen realize that. and i think what they also is become apparent because of the book which obviously i was aware of yeah uh is how important faith is to them i mean beyond important particularly to uh bono and the edge and, and larry yeah and now uh after all this time adam as well yeah. uh, who was all who was the great yeah. uh you know uh thorn in the side of yeah. of, of the faith uh aspect of you to the balance he's now uh, got his own version of that yeah. and yeah. you know it's part of what's kept them uh, on that path uh, has kept them humble as is this fact that they believe they are they believe in a larger thing yeah. and yeah. they pray and yeah. they've been doing that you know when uh, when we were in rock and roll bands we basically wanted to take drugs and get laid and you know <laughs> they were having prayer meetings at the back of the bus uh, and uh, and we thought they were missing all the fun but but you know they were having a different kind of fun, and they're still having that uh, yeah. that kind of fun. Yeah, um, it's been very important to him, and I, I, I do know that in that book, surrender. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's not he writes about a lot of things, yeah. But yeah. there's not one section where this is about the making of Joshua Tree or this is about the making of yeah. Acton Baby. But there's yeah. five pages on his visit to the Holy Land with his family. You know. Yeah. I've That's got two copies and I need them signed at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, too busy in London to see me, eh, Bono? And you saw oh, Noel Gallagher, didn't you? You did see me, though. <laughs> well, he is busy. You know, he has always said he's he, he's a loyal but unreliable friend. Yeah. Um, he pops up and in and out of my life. I did actually briefly. I did see him when he was in London, um, but you know, yeah. we talk on text. I can reach him if he needs, if I need to reach him, and and he can reach me if he needs to ask me something. But you know, when you're at the center of that, you can you're you're at the center. You know, he knows too many people. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. London is one of the places where he knows the most people. Yeah, Dublin is even worse, you know, because yes. he basically knows everybody in the city, or everybody in the city think they know him. Yeah. You know, if you want to catch up with Bono, you you do. Um, you should go to Cheltenham, or yes. you know, sometimes when they're on tour, I'll do a big date like London, or you'll start somewhere, but where yeah. I actually catch up with them is in Philadelphia or somewhere where you know every other celebrity on the planet hasn't congregated oh yeah. yeah although you'll certainly find you know i go to these u2 shows and you know i'm usually on the desk the sound desk watching and, look around and, and there'll be like al gore there or something you know there'll be the yeah. low whoever's the local politician whoever's the local actor whoever's the will will be there 
Yeah, were you at Cheltenham? I didn't see you at Cheltenham. Were you there? No, no, I didn't go to Cheltenham. Okay. No, no. I was just saying that's okay. that, that, that's the right thing to do if you want to have a little. Yeah, I I actually went to Cheltenham. Um, I loved the interview he did with Emma Freud. Like it was brilliant. Like it was just so bono. Um, so literally, as soon as he came off stage, I had Ali in my eye line, and I literally made a beeline for Ali, and I was like, Ali, I'm here. And literally then, like, when I was like, oh, hello, I didn't know you were coming. And I was like, oh, nobody told you. <laughs> so he had got the memo that I was coming. So, but we've got two minutes together. That was really nice. And Brian Murphy, I've known all my life. And, like, he saw me. So he was like, go on, go and have two minutes with him. Go on. So that was really nice. Like, Brian's such a sweetie. He's The great Brian Murphy, uh, Bono's uh, security guy, who's just... He's just a fantastic presence. Yeah. And, and just a quite a little guy. Oh, he's lovely. <laughs> Very little, compact, you know, yeah. he's sort of invisible to things, but you know that guy must be able to handle himself. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. You wouldn't cross him. You wouldn't want to cross him or Darren Murphy for that either. <laughs> Darren Murphy is Edge's cutie guy. And he's he kind of when you first see him, you're kind of like, oh God, like you won't cross him on a dark night. But actually, he's lovely. He's actually really soft and really friendly. Um, so I absolutely adore him as well. Like he's part of my YouTube family now. He's lovely and he looks after us. Um, because when they were in London back in 2018 at the O2 for those two nights, um, I went on the boat down the Thames with Edge on the boat, and Darren was like. I'll take your suitcase, Kira. And literally, I made him wheel my pink suitcase up to the boat. <laughs> literally, he was holding on to my pink suitcase on the boat. And I was like, I need a bodyguard now. I, I need to hire him when the few days are over. <laughs> so is everything everything pink with you? I see you've got your pink top on there. Is yeah. that a Christmas design on your pink yes, top? Yes, it's Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> okay. Yes. Is the season. Um, so, favourite U2 song, least favourite U2 song? Well, you know, that's a huge... <laughs> ah! I, you know, I love U2. I, 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 what would be my favourite? Um, you know, I, I like... I, I do really like an understated aspect of U2 that isn't heard or isn't what they're known for, but they're actually... Uh, very good at songs like Unknown Caller, uh, songs like With or Without You is, is one that's a famous one that's known, uh, All I Want Is You, that kind of atmospheric, beautiful stuff. Um, but, you know, and I think the greatest rock song they've ever done is Vertigo. I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and 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 come so late. Obviously, my my original attachment was to the record Boy, and yeah. you know I the, I grew up with these songs being made. You know uh, I understood them, and I still gives me a great thrill. But I was actually um, I was doing the YouTube book around the time they were recording Atomic uh, uh, Bomb, yeah. and. Um, I walked in, I, I went over to Dublin to see them and um, walked into the, the uh, studio office and they were actually working on nice. um, Vertigo yeah. and it was just the edge and Bono playing nice. playing this 
and they were right back, and they were literally I walked in <laughs> and they're playing this thing and they went to that bit where it goes and they did Neil and then Bono looked over and went oh hi Neil <laughs> <laughs> I remember hearing Vertigo in Edgy's kitchen in his house in um, Pliny because we used to go and stay there and I think I remember him playing me that in the kitchen in Pliny and he went Kira what do you think of that song can I have your honest opinion and I went if you release that that would be number one and when they released it it went top 10 and I was like told you very good very good yeah the, I, the I, other I, thing you're asking me there was my least favorite and, yeah. and that would be really really okay. difficult there's there's a strange thing that is that that you know most YouTube fans came to YouTube because they heard something yeah. and and then they liked it and then they start to follow them uh Whereas I came to YouTube because they were my school friends and I went to all the shows and I saw it developing. It, it doesn't correspond that much with the other music I like. Yeah. Um, I've just been really interested in their journey. I'm always interested in, in what, they're, what they're doing next. I've never been the hugest fan of the big, you know, blasting city of blinding lights type of of rock epics i wouldn't say i would never describe them as my least favorite they're just not my biggest favorite that's not what i i I like um i i I like what they do with that music in a in a stadium or a venue what was really interesting at bono's palladium shows was to hear some of those songs done in a more intimate Mm -hmm. uh setting and in a in a in a different way, and to see the quality of the the, the song that lurks there. But yeah, but you know, things like Pride are not the reason that I love you uh, two. But I recognise that when they're they're so great with a large audience, you two. They were great when they were starting out with a small audience, but it was a different kind of uh, focused dynamic. The way they drilled into things. And then they just got bigger and bigger and more expansive. And it was funny. I, I saw them at the Astoria maybe 20 years ago or 22 oh, years I was ago. there. I remember that oh, one. Okay. And uh, that's an intimate gig for them. Yeah. And it was great and everything. Yeah. But I remember thinking, this is not where they belong anymore. Yeah. This music is now too big for the Astoria. It needs to be heard in the biggest possible place where yeah. it unites the most people. It's music of, of, of uniting the, yeah. the crowd, um, not music of, you know, seducing the crowd. Yeah, we, um, it was funny. Um, when they came to London and they were doing their Pop Mart tour with a big, you know, the big lemon that came down. Yeah. And my mum brought my nana with us because our nana was over from Ireland staying with us. So my mum and dad brought my nana and we all went to the U2 Pop Mart show at Wembley Stadium. And my nana couldn't understand why there was this huge lemon. And 
like that's all she could remember she didn't care about anything else on the night she all she was like why do this band have this lemon that they're in like what she she didn't quite get it and I I was really trying to explain to her like you know bands have things that they use like props and like that's their prop for this tour and like she was just obsessed with this lemon and the pop mart tour it's very funny I think that um, a lot of you two fans are still asking why they had the lemon, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, apparently it broke a couple of times. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, they got stuck in the lemon yeah. a couple of times. Brilliant. So I think my favourite, I'm very biased, I have to say, but if I was to pick two, two okay. of my favourites, it would have to be Where the Streets Have No Name, because that was one of the first ones I ever heard. And then I think the other one for personal reasons is Beautiful Day um, okay. because one of my friends who has a son with quite a severe physical disability, he was born the day that Beautiful Day was released. Wow. So for him, that song means a lot personally. And so when I met him and he, I met his son and him together, it kind of really hit me that actually this song is something that means so much to them and I'd never seen a U2 song like that before um so and then anytime now I hear Beautiful Day I think of him and his son now and I said to Ed you know it's really lovely that now I'm kind of connecting with you two in a different way through your music and like he loves that when I tell him the stories I tell him and it's really nice like sometimes I get to hear things before they come out and kind of go that's really good that's really nice I like that so sometimes I get to be guinea pig on you too so that's quite nice I still own my cup I'm still chasing that um but yeah no thank you so much this has been really lovely thank yeah, you it has been lovely uh, well you know thank you for having me ah, um, well thank you so now you've done my podcast Ed has done my podcast so you know who we need next <laughs> Larry <laughs> I was thinking something a little bit more famous. Oh, don't say that in front of Larry. <laughs> <laughs> this is all put together by James Fielders from Surrey Hills Radio, which you can hear my show and my friend Mark on Surrey Hills Community Radio for It's That Friday Feeding from 3 till 5. So make sure you lock in, tell your friends. We'll see you next time.